Well, as many of you know, I've been a church rat my whole life. I was born into my father's little country church, upstate New York, and, and have spent my entire life in what, what I used to call the evangelical movement. So I've lived through uh, several seasons of political divisiveness in the church. I was a teenager in the 60s and 70s when, when our nation was, was divided over the Vietnam War. Many of our youth leaders in those days were vets, young men just coming home from their tour of duty, having risked their lives in service to their country. Meanwhile, the kids they were serving were showing up to youth group with, with peace signs around their necks and humming the latest protest song. We had hawks and doves in that church, and, and you could feel the tension. But somehow, we, we, we all pressed through those differences, and that church enjoyed some of its most vibrant ministry in those same decades. Back in the early 80s, I was a young pastor. In the days when uh, the religious right was squaring off against the progressive left. It was kind of the beginning of a partisan political fault line in the church. And, and again, you could feel the tension. But, but, but our commitment to, to the mission and the gospel enabled us to, to rise above those things. I came to Grace early in the 2000s, and uh, the social justice movement was just emerging. And it was challenging the church's traditional priorities of evangelism and discipleship. And again, you could feel the tension. But, but that tension and the conversation led to what I think most of us would say is, is a more balanced understanding of the church's mission in the world. But now here we find ourselves in 2020, in what many would say is the most disruptive, most divisive, and maybe the most dangerous political season the church has ever known, at least in my lifetime. Uh, not since the days of the Civil War has, has the, the, the nation and the church been so starkly divided. Now, it's not north-south this time. It's, it's right and left. It's red and blue. It's MAGA hats and BLM t-shirts. And with the campaign in, in full swing right now, with an empty seat on the Supreme Court, with uncertainty about the transfer of power, the, 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 the whole thing is just intensified. Not to mention the, the presidential slugfest we watched earlier this week and what was supposed to pass as a debate. Now add to the mix a global pandemic, an economic crisis, racial unrest in our cities, and it feels like there's, a, like there's a powder keg sitting on November 3rd waiting to explode, like the fuse has already been lit. We're feeling anxious and afraid and, and, and sometimes angry. A recent poll reveals that 80% of Americans agree with the statement that our nation is spiraling out of control. And unfortunately, the church is being dragged down with it. Congregations are, are, are splintering. Small groups are, are, are blowing up. Households are finding themselves at odds with each other. I can't remember a time when church members were so quick to to, to, to pass judgment on each other, and, and even to walk out on each other. There has to be a better way, friends. 
has to be a better way to, to navigate this uh, landscape of faith and politics, these polarized times. There has to be a better way to honor God, honor our country, and honor each other all at the same time. And there is a better way. It's the way of Jesus. It's the way of the kingdom. And that's our theme for this year here at Grace, the way of Jesus. A better way of living and being laid out for us in the biblical books of Luke and Acts. So this fall, we are following Jesus out of the boxes that have been so disrupted here in 2020. We're following what we're calling an upward spiral that can lead us from, from disruption to discovery. So far we've learned that disruption can, can soften our hardened hearts and create space for something new to be planted and to grow. And then last week we learned that in that disruptive moment we can have a divine encounter. When, when the Lord speaks into our lives and reveals himself to us in some new ways. So today we'd like to pause at that divine encounter phase and invite God to speak into this politically disruptive moment, this space that's been created by all the, by the season we're living in. So we're going to turn to the teachings of Jesus again, and we're going to ask him to show us a way to build a bridge, to build a bridge between faith and politics, and to build a bridge between people, one another, even those who might have differences of opinion politically. So... As we do that, I realize that some of us are just wishing we could just leave this whole thing alone. Why do we even have to get into the whole politics thing? Can't we just preach the gospel? Well, that might be tempting, but it's really not an option. And Pastor Tim Keller points out that to not be political is to be political. Because to not be political is to, to not be politically engaged is to, is to be comfortable with the status quo. And in a fallen world, the status quo is never what God had in mind. So to not be political is actually to be political. But more importantly, Jesus himself speaks to, to this matter of faith and politics. He connects the two of them with profound wisdom and compelling clarity. And when we neglect Jesus' teaching on this subject, when, when we don't talk about faith and politics, we, we surrender our discipleship to, I don't know, to Tucker Carlson, to Rachel Maddow, Maddow to, to ever you happen to find on your newsfeed. I'd rather we follow Jesus. So this is actually part one of a three-part series. We're going to finish it later on, closer to the election, when I think we'll probably need it. But today, we'd just like to get ourselves started. Let's turn our attention to Jesus, our so-called disruptor-in-chief, and see if he can't show us a better way to navigate these polarized times. So, we're going to turn our attention to the Gospel of Luke again, chapter 20. We're going to be in verses 20 through 26. Now, just to set the stage here, on this particular occasion, uh, some religious leaders come to Jesus with a question. Now, Luke tells us they really weren't interested in an answer. <laughs> what they were doing was, was setting a trap. They were trying to get Jesus to say something, to take a position that would get him in trouble with the authorities. So they came to him and they said, 
Teacher, we know that you speak and teach what is right, and that you do not show partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Now, the fact is, they didn't believe that at all. They're just buttering him up. Actually, what they're doing is they're setting him up. And then they pop the question, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, this was a loaded question, highly controversial among Jews at the time. It, it was every bit as polarizing as most of the issues we wrestle with today. Abortion, uh, immigration, health care, law enforcement. In fact, the very leaders who asked this question to Jesus were themselves divided over it. Uh, the Herodians were, were pragmatists. They were okay paying taxes to Rome as long as Rome just left them alone and let them do what they wanted. The Pharisees, on the other hand, are purists. They couldn't abide paying taxes to a pagan emperor. So, what will Jesus say? Which side of the aisle would he land on? If he supports paying taxes to Rome, then he's betraying his own people. If he opposes paying taxes to Rome, then he's betraying the empire. So they offer Jesus these two boxes, loyalty to God or loyalty to Rome. Who are you with, Jesus? Pharisees or the Herodians? Us or them? Jesus refused to play along. In a classic Jesus move, he turns the question right back on them, catches them in their own trap. He saw through their duplicity and said to them, show me a denarius whose image and inscription are on it? Caesar's, they replied. He said to them, then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. Then he dropped the mic. <laughs> I mean, that's a moment, right? They were unable to trap him in what he had said there in public, and astonished by his answer, they became silent. Now, you've got to love Jesus here. First of all, he, he refuses to choose size, as if one party was righteous and the other party was not, as if such a complicated question could be resolved with a simple either-or answer. As if God's agenda could be contained in either one of those boxes. So he refuses to choose size. The second thing, he refuses to let them off the hook. They're going to have to make their own decisions about whether to pay taxes to Caesar or not. They're going to have to figure out how to best honor God and Caesar and how to get along with those who do it differently than they do. So in a single stroke, Jesus lays down this foundational principle when it comes to faith and politics. It's not a matter of either or. It's both and. It's not God or Caesar. It's God and Caesar. It's not heaven or earth. It's heaven and earth. We're citizens of two kingdoms, and we owe something to both. So the question isn't whether to honor one or the other, God or country. It's how to honor both God and country, because both have a rightful claim on our lives. We are dual citizens. 
and that either or both and principle extends through just about everything involved with, with, with political issues and platforms. It's rarely a matter of either or. It's almost always both and. It wasn't about paying taxes or not paying taxes, as if they had a choice. It was about how they paid taxes and why they paid taxes and with what spirit they paid taxes and it was about what they did with the rest of their money. But you see, this is what politics tends to do to us. It tends to put us in boxes. Republican or Democrat, conservative or liberal, Trumper or Bidener. I'm not sure those are actually words, but you, you get what I mean. As if you have to be fully on board with one or the other, as if either one is fully aligned with God's agenda. Politics pressures us to choose sides. Are you with the police or the protesters? Are you with Wall Street or Main Street? Are you with us or are you with them? The implication being, of course, that God is with us. <laughs> it's not that simple, Jesus says. Politics tries to take these complex issues and reduce them to these binary choices. Are you for the unborn child or the immigrant child? Are you for the economy or are you for the environment? Are you for masks or no masks? It's rarely either or, Jesus says. There's a both and dimension to, to every one of these issues. And so just like first century Jews had to figure out what they would do about paying taxes, we have to figure out how best to address all of these issues and, and which ones the Lord might be calling us to at a particular moment, individually and as a church. And which policy or party or platform can best advance the interests of the kingdom? Now, those aren't easy questions to answer. And we are not always going to agree on the answers. But there are three things we cannot let politics do to us. We cannot let politics define us. We cannot let politics divide us. And we cannot let politics distract us. So I'd like to speak to all three of those dangers as we take a closer look at these words of Jesus, as he teaches us how to live as dual citizens of heaven and earth. So the first thing I'm going to learn here is that politics can't define us when we remember who we are. Politics can't define us when we remember who we are. Let's look again at the question Jesus poses to these leaders. Show me a denarius, he says, whose image and inscription is on it. <laughs> Jesus is so smart. <laughs> he forces them to reach into their purse. Men carried purses in those days. Robes don't have pockets. So <laughs> they, they reach into their purse and they pull out a coin of the empire. And that coin not only bore an image of Caesar, it carried an inscription that read, Tiberius Caesar, son of divine Augustus. Now, interestingly, Jesus doesn't rebuke them 
for carrying around or even using these blasphemous coins. He's simply pointing out the obvious that they've already accepted a certain amount, a certain role for Rome in their lives. Like it or not, they're citizens of an earthly kingdom, even a pagan one. But they owe that kingdom a certain respect. And so do we. Regardless of, of who's in power or what form of government we find ourselves living under, we are called to respect the government the role the government is meant to play in, in preserving peace and, and promoting prosperity and in pursuing justice. And we'll talk more about our relationship to our earthly government uh, later on in the series. But by calling attention to this image on the coin, he's reminding them that they are also carrying around with them someone else's image. The image of their creator stamped on their very souls. You see, these, these leaders, they knew their scriptures. And as soon as Jesus said that word image, their minds would have run right to, to Genesis 1. Let us make mankind in our image. In the image of God, God created them. Male and female, God created them. And in that simple reference, by pointing them to Genesis 1, Jesus is reminding them and reminding us who we are fundamentally. We are image bearers. Every one of us, no matter our race, our gender, our, our religion, our socioeconomic group, our political affiliation, our favorite football franchise, we are all image bearers of the Most High God. That image has been stamped on our very souls. It's who we are fundamentally as human beings. The New Testament goes on to tell us that that image stamped on our souls is actually the image of Christ, who is himself the image of the invisible God. We are each designed, destined even, to be transformed into a unique reflection of Jesus himself. And so for, for those of us who have chosen to follow Jesus, we're not just image bearers, we are Christ followers. It's who we are, it's our identity, and we dare not forget it. Now we hear a lot these days about identity politics, and it gets a little complicated. You can Google it and get very complex definitions, but the basic idea behind identity politics is simply that our political choices are determined by who we want to be with rather than what we want to happen. In other words, it's, I'm with that group, I'm with that person, I'm with that tribe. In fact, it's often called tribal politics. I'm with him, I'm with them. It's about finding our identity in a particular group or party or, or tribe. And that's dangerous. Because when you think of yourself as a Republican or a Democrat, instead of as an image bearer of God, you've forgotten who you are fundamentally. And when I see you as a follower of Trump or a follower of Biden, instead of as a follower of Jesus, I've forgotten who you are. I've let politics 
define you. And we can't let that happen, Jesus says. Billy Graham is considered by most people to be perhaps the, the greatest Christian statesman of modern times. Uh, he was the embodiment of, of, of what, was, what used to be meant by the word evangelical, all the best of that word. For decades, he was one of the most admired men on the planet. But early in his career, Billy Graham made a mistake that he always regretted. He allowed himself to become too politically aligned with, with the president at the time, President Nixon. And he created all kinds of confusion. It, 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 it compromised his, his message. It, it hindered his ability to reach out and bring the gospel to, to all Americans. So when he realized the difficulties it was call, causing, he, he broke it off. And, and he made a public commitment that neither he or his organization would ever again be aligned with any political party. And on his watch, it never happened again. We are in danger of making that mistake today. Evangelicals used to be famous, used to be known for what we believed in, right? We believe in the Bible. We believe in Jesus. We believe in being born again. That's what we were famous for. What are evangelicals known for today? Politics, probably. How we vote, as if we all vote the same way, but that's how we're known. We can't let that happen. The gospel is too good. It's too expansive. It's too transcendent to be tethered to any particular party or platform. And, and the evangelical movement is too broad. It's too diverse to vote as a block, no matter how the media may want to portray us. We don't want the gospel all tangled up with, with a political party or platform. We don't want anyone to think they, they have to become a this or a that in order to be a follower of Jesus. So friends, let's not let politics define us. Let's not put one another in boxes that are too small for God's glory. Let's not find our identity in any particular party or meme. Let's remember who we are. Let's remember that every human be being is an image bearer of the Most High God and that every Christ follower is being transformed into the likeness of Christ. Even those we disagree with, which leads us to our second lesson. Well, first, politics can't define us when we remember who we are. Secondly, politics can't divide us when we remember how to treat each other. Politics can't define us when we remember who we are. Politics can't divide us when we remember how to treat each other. Let's look again at Jesus' words. A little more subtle, but, but it's there. He said to them, Then give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. Now, it's fairly obvious what we owe Caesar, taxes. I'm sorry to say so, but that's what Jesus says, okay? 
respect, obeying the laws of the land, those sorts of things. But what do we owe God? Notice, he didn't say exactly. He, he wants them to figure it out. He wants us to figure it out. What do we owe God? Tithes? Well, probably, but that's another sermon. <laughs> I think Jesus is after something more fundamental here. Truth is, he'd already told these religious leaders what they owed God. In an earlier conversation, a lot like this one, he had affirmed that we are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. So when you think about it, that's really what we owe, owe God as citizens of his kingdom. We owe him love, love for him, love for our neighbors. It's pretty simple. But just in case his listeners and just in case we were wondering exactly who our neighbors are, <laughs> Jesus follows up that other conversation with a story of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan who, if you remember, crossed the aisle, I mean crossed the road, <laughs> to help someone who was very different from him, a Jew. And by that story, Jesus is making clear that our neighbors include those who are most different from us. The, the, ones, the ones we can't always understand. Well, like the neighbor who, who has that sign on their lawn. Like the neighbor who wears that red hat or that black t-shirt. Like the neighbor online who's always posting those angry screeds. The neighbor at church who keeps saying that hurtful thing. The neighbor in your small group who, who doesn't seem to get it and maybe doesn't even seem to want to get it sometimes. As citizens of the kingdom and as followers of Jesus, we love them all. We love them all. And interestingly, loving people is really what politics is all about. The, the root word of politics is a Greek word, polis, which means city. Not, not the buildings, but, but the inhabitants, people. So politics reminds us that we don't live alone. There are other people out there, neighbors, Jesus calls them. And politics requires that we think about them. And faith requires that we love them, even the ones who are most different from us. We'll talk more about this in a few weeks, how to do politics in a way that actually loves our neighbors. But for now, let's just notice that one of the most loving things we can do is to step outside of the political boxes we're comfortable in the ones we're familiar with, our newsfeed, our friendship circle, our social or religious cohort, and listen to someone whose life experience and political perspective might be very different from ours. I mean, really listen. <laughs> not, 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 not to answer or react or to counterpunch, but, but to learn. That's what, that's what our Be the Bridge groups have been all about. Uh, in her book by that title, Latasha Morrison, 
very graciously but pointedly describes what it was like for her to, to grow up as a black Christian woman in America. And in our discussion groups, many of us, of all colors, and myself included, had our eyes open to things we had never really understood before. Aspects of our history we, we didn't even know about. How differently other people experienced some of the same events and, and situations that we had lived through. They've been disruptive conversations sometimes. They've uncovered these blind spots that we've had to confront. They've exposed some wounds that, that need to be healed. And I won't pretend the conversations have always been comfortable. They've, they've been stretching sometimes. They, 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 they've challenged us. But they've also been, been liberating. They've been enlightening. They've been healing. It takes time to be transformed into the likeness of Christ. It's not going to happen in one conversation or one book discussion. It's sure not going to happen in one sermon or sermon series. But we have to start somewhere. Now, if you missed those conversations, you'd like to be part, we're going to start another round of, of Be the Bridge groups if you'd like to be part of that. Uh, some years ago, I, had, uh, I found myself at odds politically with, with a friend in Christ. Now, we'd known and respected each other for years and, and had rarely had any differences of substance between the two of us. But in a politically contentious season, we suddenly found ourselves on different sides of the aisle. Now, I knew him to be thoughtful and godly, but I couldn't understand how he was arriving at some of the positions he was arriving at. It was frustrating. <laughs> at times it was exasperating. And I know he was exasperated with me sometimes. And, and over time, it, it began to create some distance between us. But at a certain point, we dared to talk about it. And he shared with me his point of view and, and, and how he got there. He, he told me how uncomfortable it felt for me to be trying to put him into a particular political box, my political box. And as we talked, it became clear that, as I listened, it became clear that we both loved God and people and our country. We just had different priorities. We had different strategies to, for how to express that love in the world and in our nation. So we, we never did come to agreement politically. We really didn't. I, I, neither of us changed our minds. But I think it made me a better, a better citizen. It made me a better Christ follower. And really, it made us better friends. So let's not let politics divide us. Let's not make judgments about each other. Let's not cancel each other. Let's not give up on each other. Let's remember who we are and what we owe God and each other as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, love. So, politics can't define us when we remember who we are. And politics can't divide us when we remember how to treat each other. And finally, politics can't distract us 
when we remember where our hope is found. Politics can't distract us when we remember where our hope is found. Let's face it, politics is pretty discouraging right now. I don't know about you, but I didn't make it through that whole debate the other night. It just got too ugly and too uncomfortable. Politics is, is feeling like a, like a lose-lose proposition right now. I mean, we dread the next four weeks leading up to the election. And truth be told, we're probably dreading the four weeks after the election because we don't know how this is all going to play out and what the future holds. It'd be really easy to just want to give up on the whole thing altogether. But, but we've seen that Jesus doesn't give us that option. In his teaching, he's reminding us that we are citizens of two kingdoms, God and country, and we owe something to both. But they're not equal kingdoms, are they? We owe a certain allegiance to our government, whose image is stamped on our coins. But we owe a higher allegiance to our God, our Creator, whose image is stamped on our very souls. It's the image of Christ, the image of the invisible God. And that is where our hope is found. Later in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul is writing a letter to to believers who are being persecuted by another pagan emperor, Nero, this time. Truth be told, Paul is actually being persecuted. He's actually in prison at the time and may well be executed unjustly by this pagan emperor. And so these believers are feeling very afraid and very discouraged. Listen to what Paul says. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So for those of us who follow Jesus, who are trusting him to forgive us and transform us into his own image, He is our hope. And so when our nation's problems seem insurmountable, when our institutions and leaders seem so inadequate, we remember that our hope is in Christ. So as dual citizens, we we owe it to our country to be informed and active citizens. We owe it to our neighbors to love them, whether they agree with us or not. But our hope, our hope is not grounded in whoever is elected in November. Your identity is not defined by who you vote for in November. And our unity is not dependent on how we all vote on November 3rd. Our identity, our unity, and our hope are in Christ. And so is the world's. So is the world's. So let's not let politics distract us from worshiping and serving and proclaiming Jesus to the world. May we remember that we are first and foremost citizens of the kingdom of heaven, And we eagerly await a Savior from there, even the Lord Jesus Christ.
So we're going to stop there for now, folks. Thanks for joining us for this important but difficult conversation and journey. We'll come back to it uh, a few weeks from now. We have an opportunity now to, to actually join in worshiping our present and coming King, Jesus, and then to gather around his table, the communion table. A couple of our elders are going to lead us to the table this week. And that the table is a, is a wonderful way of pledging our allegiance, so to speak, to, to Christ and to his kingdom. So, I'll see you at the table.